HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation. Today we're broadcasting live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having Atron down here for the fifth year in a row. Our guests today are, we have a great show, this is the Champagne Show. Our guests are Ariel Arce, proprietor of Niche Niche Supper Club, Tokyo Record Bar, this is where you gotta take a breath, and Air Champagne Parlor, all in New York City. Philippe Andre, U.S. brand ambassador for Champagne, Charles Heitzig, and Christian Holthausen, director of export sales and international communications for A.R. Lenoble Champagne. Those were very long titles and intros. Thank you for coming. Good night. We'll see you next year. Well done, Sam. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you guys for coming and joining us. I'm very excited. Um, I know we're all big Champagne fans and Champagne evangelists, so when you can put a bunch of people together like this and talk about it, it's a lot of fun. Um, Before we get into things, I just want to go around the horn quickly and just sort of introduce yourself and tell everyone a little about who you are, what you're doing, and the brand. But quickly, we'll go around this way. So, Christian, no, Christian, you start. So, I'm Christian Holthausen. I'm the Expert and Communications Director for Champagne Air Le Noble. We're a small, uh, completely family-owned, independent uh, domain uh, in Champagne. And uh, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, my name is Ariel Arce. I own a couple restaurants in New York City, but today, uh, Air Champagne, where uh, basically the mission is to just have more people drinking champagne. And uh, I really, I really like to drink champagne, Sam. <laughs> That's why you're here. Yeah. Philippe? Yes. Uh, my name is Philippe Andre. I'm the U.S. Ambassador for Charles Heitzig Champagne. Uh, here for uh, a beautiful time here in the Charleston area, but excited to share our wines and our passion for, um, for the experience here together. So thank you. Yeah. So all of you are down here participating in festival events, which is nice. Anything from tastings to dinners, um, which is why the festival is so great. The diversity of, you know, from a small champagne grower to a reputable house to an entrepreneur in the business and all that. All right, so because of that, I could be wrong on this, but these days champagne seems so ubiquitous. Restaurant lists, parties, you know, it used to be celebratory. Um, You said champagne is a drug, right? (laughs) A legal one, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Why are we so excited about champagne now? I mean, well, I don't want to say it's having its moment because I think this is the beginning of a long time. But, you know, there weren't a couple of champagne bars in New York three, four, five, eight, ten years ago. The interest in smaller growers, the house brands. I mean, what do you think it is, Christian? I mean, I think we have to remember, like, to contextualize everything, that Champagne is famous for one reason only. Um, our, our first uh, king of France, Clovis, converted to Christianity in Reims in 496. We've been the king of wines and the wine of kings since the 5th century, even though we've only been sparkling for the last uh, 300 years. So I think we've always had this very celebratory uh, context of uh, Champagne. I think what's interesting uh, over the last maybe decade or so is that people are starting to really appreciate uh, Champagne more often and not necessarily Less associated, but also not necessarily associated with uh, caviar and lobster. I mean, I, I'm a pretty hardcore socialist. Like when you come to visit us at the house, like we'll drink old vintages with a roasted chicken. <laughs> I think most people, you're hardworking people. If you spent 60 bucks for a bottle of champagne, there's not a lot of money left over for the caviar and the lobster and the oysters. So I think that part of what a lot of us have been trying to do is, is sort of democratize champagne like a little bit and make right. sure that everyone can have a glass of champagne. Right. And yeah. I think that that's kind of helped really remove it out of this very celebratory context, which, again, is 15 centuries old. Right. And Ariel, I mean, your entree into the business, first one out was Ayers, right? Yep. I mean, your passion and your love. You know, what was the compulsion then to really take... I wouldn't say a risk, but put it out there and, you know, be the champagne person in New York City of all places. Well, I mean, you know me, I'm born and raised in Hell's Kitchen in New York City where, uh, you know, nobody's really drinking champagne around there when I'm growing up. <laughs> We're really trying to protect our handbags more than anything. Um, but I, to kind of just backpedal, I think the thing about champagne, and, and we've been having this conversation more and more, is that it's kind of the only region in the world where it's always been associated with a brand where the name champagne is actually a place. Right. Um, and the perception has always been that champagne is this place of luxury. And the reality is, is it's filled with farmers and people making really great wines um, with really uh, thoughtful mindsets. And it's really kind of a bit of a disservice to only think about these wines as something that you should drink uh, with a high price point and once a year, you know, when it's New Year's or Christmas or Hanukkah. Um, mm -hmm. But there are eight nights, so you should be popping a bottle every, every <laughs> night. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's been a really, um, it's a bit been a bit of a struggle to kind of change that narrative and say, actually, these wines are made wine first and the effervescence is a byproduct, really, of just the style of the wine. And we should really be analyzing them in the same way that we're analyzing wine. It's wine, wine with bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. The focus is moving towards that. Absolutely. But it wasn't there and it's not all there yet. Uh, we're working towards it, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Philippe, I mean, your whole task as a brand ambassador is certainly a loyalty to the brand, but, you know, to the bubble. Yeah. I would think now, you know, things are as good or getting better than ever. Yeah, the, the, the champagne market is is growing. Um, it's bubbly at the moment, as we would say. But uh, at our winery, we're lovers of wine. And I think that's the biggest thing is we love to celebrate our neighbors, other other winery regions, and um, it's part of part of uh, life, just like any wine. So we happen to be a winery in the Champagne region of France, and we celebrate obviously the Champagne winemaking style, which has bubbles. And so um, we're we're big fans of the movement, and we love sharing the passion and dedication it takes to to make wines like this. And obviously, our our neighbors that do the same. So yeah, who? Each one of you can answer this. Who do you think, and we've sort of answered it, and you guys are the answers to some extent, 
But who do you think has been at the forefront of bringing champagne, you know, into popularity and, you know, like you said, less, more, less celebratory and more regular? Is it, are Psalms responsible for restaurant You're lives? sitting next to one of them, yeah. Is, is it you as an influencer? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was happening when I before said it was champagne born, is having so. a time, no, but it's people like you that are pushing, you know, the... No, I, I agree. I think, I think at the end of the day, we need to make sure that people have it in their glass early and often so they can understand what it takes to make a wine from Champagne Region of France, but also to understand that it's something that we can enjoy every day with cuisine, you know, whatever the But moment. I'm talking awareness. I no, mean, I is the day of social media that mm. today helps more than... Look, everything's about creating demand. And when it first started, you know, there were some pioneers in this industry that went to Champagne, because that's what it always starts with, is somebody actually going and evangelizing a region and saying, holy shit, excuse me, there's something going on and here. And the virtues And this is different than what we're seeing, you know, in our marketplace. I can only speak specifically about America. And saying, okay, let's start bringing some awareness. And at that time, what was very helpful is that the wines really were affordable. Like, right. I mean, they were expensive. Let's be relative here. But, you know, they were something that you could actually afford to purchase and then compare against something that was maybe a little bit more expensive. And you could see the virtue of the wine first. Right. And now we are some 20, 30, 40 years later where those people that were the very first ones to come to the market are now sometimes the parents of winemakers that are now becoming more coveted. And um, price point is raising. And when that happens, you need people who are able to talk about them um, from the perspective of how are these wines being made? What's the story of the winemaker? What's the history of the, of the winery and the actual region? Because Champagne is a family business, first and foremost. I mean, even the big houses to the small growers, it is impossible to just buy in now. I mean, to buy one hectare, we talk about a million right. euros. Right. So this is a legacy business. Right. And to be able to tell the story of the legacy, that does involve people who really, truly love these wines. And that does become your sommeliers or, you know, people who are wine shop owners or importers that are absolutely obsessed and can evangelize. And I think that... For, do you, do you example, agree? I mean... I do. I agree with Ariel 100%. I, I also think that um, today there's a, a demand for transparency that was significantly higher in the past. Yes. I mean, here in yeah. South Carolina, we're represented by curated selections. They do a fantastic job. And our feeling is that we only work with people that have visited us and we only work with people that import us directly because um, I, I think that champagne uh, is is overpriced and we need to make champagne uh, more accessible. I also think that um, to, I was at a, an event in Boston a couple weeks ago and a woman said to me, what marketing materials do you have? And I said, I haven't used herbicides or pesticides in my vineyard for 20 years. Those are my marketing materials. And I think that that's really cool that things are changing. Um, it makes me laugh whenever I come to the United States go to McDonald's, they're legally obligated to put all of the ingredients they have. Most champagne producers historically have just had some ridiculous story on the back label and they haven't to give you anything. So I think that now people want to come to the vineyards and they want to actually see the vineyards. When I meet young sommeliers today, 25, 30 years old, they ask about how we're farming. They ask about what we're doing and they're asking about values and convictions. Um, my parents would say a generation ago, you came to Champagne and you sat in a room with someone wearing a fancy dress and they talked about caviar and Marie Antoinette. I don't think people want that anymore. And I think that um, if we, to Felice one, if we make people realize that Champagne is actually a wine, albeit a wine from the most famous wine region in the world, that helps all of us. So 
The theme so far has been that champagne is a wine, that wine is an agricultural product, that it's basically farmers, and that people perceive it in a different way, but that's changing. But that's also a dogmatic approach because, you know, as a person who loves and has spent my entire adult life really excited about this region, I'm obsessed with both of the wines that are being represented here today. And we're going to talk about that. Charles Heitzig was the very first wine region, uh, wine house that I ever visited. And I have a really longstanding relationship. And that's a house, I mean, Philippe will tell you more, that's about aging, right? Right. The history of that is about how long can we put something in a cellar? And those wines are so phenomenal. And on the other hand, you know, A.R. Lenobe is about what are we doing in the vineyards? And there's such an amazing thing about Champagne is that it's this massive spectrum of wine, vignerons to farmers and everything in between. And nothing is right or wrong. It's more about understanding that there's so many different players that come to the table and they all have a unique story and a tradition to them. And that's what makes them special. So. In following in that vein, champagne houses, some have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? I think the grower champagne movement, correct me, is a little younger, right? Um, For my listeners, I want you guys, and I don't think there's a better group of people to explain grower champagne and, you know, the bigger house champagnes. I'm not looking, you know, one is better or not. They're both great, and I think you... Put it that way. But I guess I'll start with you two. Um, tell people what a grower champagne or a smaller champagne maker is. And then I want you to discuss how a large house, you know, isn't just making this manufactured style, but, you know, can Absolutely. have consistency. I mean, full, full disclosure, I, uh, I've been with Lenoble for six years, but prior to that, I spent 12 years of my life at Charles Heidegg. I know. So I'm a massive fan of Charles Heidegg. I have to be very honest, and I know this isn't maybe what you were looking for. I'm actually tired of these false dichotomies, and I'm really tired of these definitions. The definition of grower champagne is a complete construct. It's the like natural wine. The definition of Grand Marc is a complete construct. For me, I feel like there are good producers and mediocre producers everywhere in the world, including in Champagne. And I think that this uh, house versus vigneron versus cooperative thing, I, I find really tedious, and a lot of people are really working uh, to push it. Um, A lot of growers are making really bad wine. A lot of houses are making some of the best wines in Champagne. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to see Le Noble served alongside Agrippard and Bereche, but also served alongside Charles Heidzik and Louis Roderer. Like, I think that we can all work together. Um, So I I find the house versus grower thing silly. I also think that it's... um, it's dangerous to say that the well, grower my movement. The question wasn't house versus. No, but I think that. The question was there is a movement. But I don't necessarily know if I agree with that either because I don't think there's a grower movement because growers and houses have been intrinsically linked like yeah, our whole lives. Without yeah. the houses, there were no growers. Without the growers, there were no houses. So I actually think that we've always been intrinsically linked. I mean, if you mean movement, has there been more awareness lately? I guess that's Maybe there's what... been more awareness. But. Um, I, again, I think there's enough room for everything. Yeah. We have to remember that Champagne is 3% of all the wine produced in France. 3% and 22% of the value. Um, there's enough market share for everyone. And I think when good producers work together like we're doing today, that, that for me is the essence of Champagne. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. I think, I think the biggest thing is we need to express about the movement of growers in a sense of we have a new generation of winemakers and farmers that are wanting to make their own wines and express their own terroirs, which is outstanding. But as a house, we rely on them to help supply and create the experiences that only we can create after we age it in cellar 
the wines. I mean, there's there's a symbiotic relationship that we have, which we need them and they need us, and it's a it's a beautiful thing when you see them come together. Yeah. And to take what these two lovely men are saying, and to just define for your listeners, there is a difference between RM and NM, and that is the conversation of you know the story between what is a grower and what is a house, which is one which is the RM, which grows grapes and makes wines from grapes that they grow. And the other is a place that buys grapes and makes grape uh, makes wine from grapes that they purchase and sometimes in addition to grapes that they have. Right. So it's not one versus the other. It's just two different ways that we've uh, classified winemaking within the region. And there are also other ways that that works as well, too. There are cooperatives that all, as a group, come together and bring their grapes and make wine out of that as well, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the conversation is not saying that grower wine is great because I grow my grapes and therefore make great wine. It could be a terrible winemaker, but make beautiful grapes and really should be selling them <laughs> instead of making wine from them. And vice versa, there are incredible winemakers that are working with oftentimes not so great of a product. So um, it's more, again, about telling the story of the individual house or winemaker um, and then judging the product. I agree. I mean, obviously, it's a contentious subject because if I go back to the question, the question was, explain the two to me. Now, to your point, when you say what's natural wine, that's a bad term. When you say grower champagne, that may not be the best term. And then I also said I'm not looking to see which is better, just sort of to find the difference. And I think the answer plus more. I, 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 think, I think you've excused yourself from the responsibility. But no, that wasn't the point. No, I think, I think I, there wasn't no. a set of questions like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. I, I think it's important that our, our listeners understand the differences. I think it's also important they understand that we embrace all the differences together as a whole. And we want to, to share all the differences that we have at our disposal from this beautiful region of Champagne. Right. Um, let me ask you guys, as much as you know about this... Um, I do a show every week, and inevitably I bring it up or it's brought up by the guests. And that's global conditions, climate warming. And I think Champagne is a region um, that is more vulnerable than some others. Eventually it'll catch up. Is there an issue with climate and how climate is changing and how it's affecting Champagne, harvest, the quality, how you have to make the wines now? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... There's very simple things as, uh, you know, it's warmer at certain times of the year when it's supposed to be cold and and then you see a budding happening in the vineyards and then the next week there's a frost and it kills everything. And there's no coming back from a frost. I mean, you can still grow grapes, but they're not going to be of the caliber of what a really great winemaker is going to hope to have in their harvest. So there's little things like that that are happening. Of course, the overall warmth that is happening is changing sometimes in a good way. Right. You know? Like in England, like, there's a sparkling wine movement, right? <laughs> and I was just there, you know, a couple months ago and, and really quite interested in what's happening there. Um, but, like, I always say the best thing that I've ever eaten in my life was a plum from the market in San Francisco during the drought. Because what happens when you don't get rain? You get the most concentrated product. So what happens when the world starts to warm up, 
get a bit more concentration in your grapes. And sometimes in a region like Champagne that's so northern, that's always known for the acidity, you're starting to get some fruit in something that could always be um, known as a little bit more of an acidic product where we're covering it with a little bit more sugar to find the the complexity of the wine and now we're actually seeing that we don't have to add sugar as much and we're going to find the complexity right. within the grapes. Adjustment, but yeah. you know that also comes down to when and how a winemaker is harvesting and um, that's again taking it back to the the conversation that champagne is so unique because every winemaker does something completely different even though for the most part we're working with three grapes two of which are the most famous grapes in the world, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and yet we have so much diversity. And Pinot um, Meunier, for those who don't know yes, the third. Yes, you got that third baby in there. But I think climate change is, is, is one of the things that we talk the most about as a producer. I mean, uh, it's, it's fair to say that um, climate change was a relatively good thing for Champagne in the 1980s and 90s, but the problem with climate change is it's like this locomotive that won't stop. My parents' generation, they really struggled uh, for sugar, and they really struggled for maturity, and they really struggle for alcohol. They always had acidity. Our generation, um, the freshness keeps going down, the pH keeps going up, and it's really, really difficult. And um, I think that we have to make, uh, we have to raise uh, more awareness of this and keep talking about it. I have neighbors in Champagne that don't like that every time I'm interviewed, I talk about climate change, but I'm like, climate change is something that we all have to be involved in together. Um, we started aging uh, our reserve wines in magnums under natural cork under a bar and a half of pressure back in 2010. If you guys came home with me to Champagne tomorrow, and uh, Philippe would say the same thing, we opened up a bottle of 1979, 40 years on the lees. It's fresh because it's been preserved on the lees. We said if we can do this for our vintages, we can do it for our non-vintages. So. 30 years ago, we used to need reserve wines to add all of this richness and complexity to the base wines. Now we need reserve wines to freshen up ah. our base wines. Mm. So we age our reserve wines in magnums under bar to have for pressure for four to six years and then blend them into the base. And the whole idea is to freshen them up. Um, that, that's literally the world has gone upside down. <laughs> our acidity in Champagne used to be insane Crazy. and now it's really, really low. I think it's um, very and again, um, this is a wonderful opportunity that you're giving, I think, all of us to talk about um, how important climate change is in Champagne and how we really have to address it. Ariel's point is very good. It's not just about global warming. Last year, we had three days in Champagne. For the first time in our history, it was more than 105 degrees Fahrenheit. A week later, we had a hailstorm where the hailstones were like as big as the size of my hand. So it's not about warming. It's about the, the, it's, the inconsistency. Well, that's yeah. why it's not global warming mm. anymore. It's climate change. Mm -hmm. You just described three different, mm. you know, whether it's hail or heat spikes or, mm. you know. I was just having a giggle the other day about like, April showers bring May flowers. Yeah, really. And how, like, it's basically spring and March. And so, like, I don't know. I think once you start having these uh, massive, massive shifts, there, something like a season of champagne, you know, the start to end of a harvest used to be from you know, the beginning of spring to the end of summer. And now we're seeing that change drastically starting earlier right. and sometimes even ending later. Your take? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we prepare ourselves uh, decades in advance. And the way we make our wines, we're aging them in tank for many years to their perfection. Then we use them when we need them. Obviously, the same thing. We're, we're, we have to react as what the harvest gets us every year. We, make a, we utilize a base vintage, and then we utilize our reserve wines to react. And now, uh, when it comes to global warming and what we're dealing with, we're seeing a lot more vintage wines being made. And I think that's because we have this really ripe fruit. 
and we're able to take it, take advantage of that. Now, is that going to happen for the next 10, 15, 20 years? I don't know. That's that's a very uh, interesting and scary thought to think about. But we're taking advantage of what we can now uh, and preparing for the future, obviously, by by uh, filling our reserve tanks. So um, I think it's important that we all think about what we can do to uh, to impact our, our daily lives and, and, and being responsible. But as a, a producer, we um, we have to react to what we can can focus on now, but also plan for the future. So working on with our growers to be more sustainable, to be more thoughtful in our approach. But it's um, it's it's an interesting time we're in. Absolutely. Sam, yeah. sorry not to interject. It's such a cool thing to be sitting here with these two different wineries because the conversation about time in Champagne is one of the, I think, most underappreciated conversations. What do you mean, so, the conversation of time? What Put it in the context. Yeah, mandated by law, Champagne pretty much takes about three years for the very, very base Champagne to get to your table. So between harvest, the amount of time in the cellar, the amount of time of resting after you remove the yeast that creates the second fermentation, and then by the time that that gets transported to your table, it, entry level wines is three years and the best wines is normally about five years. And the reason why we talk about the price of champagne is not just about the price of the vineyards and the price of the grapes, but also the price of time. And when we talk about things like climate change and and global warming and things that are happening so, so fast, champagne is still living at all times, pretty much five years to 10 years, like with Charles Heidzik, um, because these wines are being made so long before they ever touch your table. And there's no other wine region in the world that one is mandated so specifically by those laws and two that people take so seriously. I mean, you taste rosé every year and it's the vintage before. You taste rosé champagne. Most of the time it's five, six years ago that that was made. Um, And that plays into the conversation as well. It's a good point. We have a few minutes left. Like I said, we could sit here, take any one subject. But I want to go around the horn, and I got a bunch of base questions for you that I don't think uh, anybody but you guys can answer. So what are the best values in champagne? Charles Heidzik, non-vintage brute. Okay. Delicious. I agree 100%. Okay. Um, are there any specific... Ariel was not paid to come on stage with me today, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. No, I was paid to say that. No, just kidding. No, no, no. You're not, you're not it, wrong it, about because that. Because the amount of reserve wine that goes into that bottle, you're basically getting a vintage wine for a non-vintage price. It's just... A, it's a crowd pleaser for anybody that um, doesn't really know what they like. It's such an incredible entry-level wine. And um, you just get so much cellared wine in the bottle. And I think, Christian, I think your wines are um, great quality for great value, Thank too. You. I mean, I think that goes into the... Uh, for us, the it, most important thing is we want to make wines that are great value. When I travel around right. the world and you people know. say to me, your wines are such good value for money, that makes me happier than anything. Because you know what? We should drink champagne on a more regular basis. And, and there's lots of ways that you can make that possible. And I, still, you know, having 45% reserve wines. We're releasing our vintage 2012 next week. I mean, that's literally been sitting in the cellar for over eight years. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, right. that's labor-intensive, but you can still have that at a fair price. couple more questions, and we're going to shut down. Best temperature to serve champagne. People tend to either do it too cold. It's always too cold. 
So what do you do? Do you like refrigerate cold it? Champagne. You I like cold no champagne. I have no problem with it. Okay, but not too cold. Sorry. All right? I mean, for I think the glass to me is more important. Well, that than was the my next it's question. Crazy Everybody wine. is used to a champagne flute. That's old school now. What do we drink champagne in? Uh, burgundy glass. Burgundy glass. <laughs> Everyone agree? And, Always. And, it's an all-purpose glass yeah. with a little bit more of a. All right. Last on question, it. and we're we're going, going, gone. Best. It could be yours or what you think. Best champagne and food pairing. Anything I've had at Air Champagne Parlor in New York. I love you. <laughs> okay, and she throws up. You, you're I pretty mean, creative. I'm, but no, I'm not creative because it's pizza and champagne. For Which me, is always. great, but you also have introduced potato chips and caviar yeah. and champagne. The fried all thing fried, is fried stuff is great. It's anything yeah. with a little bit of fat. Fr- fried chicken with caviar on top is the best way to have fried a Fried chicken and champagne. caviar? Okay. <laughs> I mean, all right. You should see all of our bodies. We are in amazing shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Including me, right? Did you mean me too? All right, we got to wrap up, guys. Okay. Um, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Stay tuned for more Charleston wine and food. I want to thank our guest, Ariel Arce, Philippe Andre, and Christian Holthausen for joining us and talking about champagne. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you. This program is powered by Simplecast.